Hello! Welcome to the Omnichannel Curious episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello, hello. And we are joined this week by the one and only Shira Overday. Welcome, Shira. So fun to be here. It's very exciting. We are doing a complete techie dive this week, but explain why we're talking about tech. Who are you? Introduce yourself. Uh, yes, I am Shira Overday. As you said, I write the On Tech newsletter at the New York Times, which I believe we describe as a guide to how technology is changing our lives and world. Everyone should subscribe to Shira's newsletter because she is amazing and it is an awesome read. NYTimes.com slash newsletters. <laughs> subscribe to Shira's newsletter. The, the New York Times has a lot of newsletters, but this is the best one. So subscribe to this one, even if you subscribe to no other. We are going to talk all about exactly that. We're going to talk about the way that Amazon has tried to reinvent physical retailing and doesn't seem to be doing such a great job of it. We are going to talk about the internet broadly and how much we are all paying for it. And do we really need to pay this much? And is the entire system broken? Um, but of course, we are going to start with the war and whether and where and how the tech companies are getting involved and I guess providing their own front on which we can attack Russia. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, Shira, let's jump in here. There is still a war on. I feel this that the war is going to supplant the pandemic as the only topic of old podcasting for the foreseeable future. Um, you are the tech person at the New York Times. Apparently, the New York Times only has one, and it's you. Um, so, uh, we, you know, sorry, Kevin. What is the tech angle here? Uh, yeah, we do have many excellent tech reporters at the New York Times. I will just say that. Uh, yeah. Was Kevin on last week? I can't even remember. Two weeks ago? Two, Whatever. Two, two weeks ago, yeah. <laughs> yes, Kevin and I and a bunch of other people. But yeah. yes, I mean, look, the, there there are two tech angles, really. The dominant one is basically how should technology companies who are basically de facto geopolitical power brokers – on the level, arguably, of like the United Nations and heads of central banks, how are those companies now responding to a state of war with a clear aggressor, something that maybe we haven't seen in some time, although that's, that's arguable. And they're dealing with two issues. One is what should they do inside of Russia? Right, the, the Ukrainian um, digital transformation minister has basically been using his Twitter account to shame executives of Apple and Microsoft and other companies to withdraw their digital services from Russia as a way to both punish the Russian government and he thinks to spur Russian citizens to turn against their government. So there's the issue of what should these global technology powers do inside of Russia? And then there's a question of what should they do outside of Russia, particularly about things like RT and Sputnik and other sources of Russian state propaganda that are skewing perceptions of this invasion in Europe or in the United States or in other places. So it's been really interesting to watch, I think. 
So what, okay, so we have been saying on this show for years that, as you exactly say, that big tech companies have the power of nation states these days, that, um, you know, David Clegg, who's basically the deputy prime minister of Facebook now, has, is more powerful than he was when he was the actual deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom. And so the first question is, we have seen... Germany and the United States and a whole bunch of other countries really flex and show amazing potential and actual power that they have to cut Russia off from the rest of the world and, and to really inflict damage on the Russian economy. Have we seen any flexes from Silicon Valley? Have we seen any indication of this awesome power that we've been told and that people like you have been telling us for years that Silicon Valley has? What has happened so far? Yeah, I mean, the, the flex, I think, is has not been entirely on their own. So I think this is a case where because so much of the international community is aligned um, against Russia and, and towards peace in Ukraine, that has given technology companies some permission to maybe be a little bit less wishy-washy about some of these issues of protecting people in conflict zones. So the, so the flexes that done? we've seen, yeah, the flexes that we've seen are, I mean, basically RT and Sputnik have been turned off um, on places like YouTube and Facebook in, in Europe and some other places, right? These are enormously powerful sources of propaganda for the Kremlin. And there's been a c contention for a long time that these Russian state propaganda outlets should not be allowed on um, foreign technology services. It's really you know, a mouthpiece for Vladimir Putin. And this is a moment where the tech companies, again, at the request of foreign governments, European governments and others, have felt emboldened to do what some critics have said they should do for a long time, which is just turn off the state, the Russian state-run media. So I'm going to take the other side of this one and say, yeah, sure, they did that and good for them. And like, I'll give them like a one finger clapping for that. But the power of propaganda, the power that the Russian media has is in its ubiquity and in its the fact that there's no real alternative within Russia that if you are a Russian news consumer uh, the Russian government has done a very good job of stamping out basically all remotely independent journalism especially in the last couple of weeks the last few remaining outlets basically got shut down and so that all you have is state propaganda and that's for that reason that's largely what you end up believing I just can't believe that there's anyone in the West who just kind of tunes into RT and goes, well, this is the only truth and ignores everything else. And therefore, like, RT has this terrible, um, maleficent influence on those of us in, in the United States or Europe or anything like that. So I'm not convinced that this turning off RT, although it's clearly symbolically necessary and important, is actually that big of a deal in the West. I, I think that's a great point. And, you know, I will say my colleague, uh, Farhad Manju at the uh, New York Times opinion section wrote, I think, a smart and provocative column in the last few days that basically asked the question you're asking, which is, is this Ukrainian invasion proof that Russian disinformation is not as influential as we have sort of thought outside of Russia? And, you know, this is sort of a question that people in the West have had to grapple with basically since the, at least since the 2016 uh, election in the United States, where Russian propaganda did kind of go viral on Facebook and other uh, American internet sites. And, you know, I mean, yeah, that's the thing, right, is that the Russians, if they want to influence what people think, they are going to be trying to influence Western media, they're going to try and get stuff on Facebook, but they're also going to try and influence you know, Tucker Carlson and people like that, who is very much still on the air, rather than just putting RT on YouTube and saying, well, come and find our actual branded propaganda. This is a situation that makes clear that sometimes information is so strong that it wins over misinformation. And it, it doesn't even matter what Facebook or, well, I mean, it matters a little bit, but the images coming out of Ukraine and coming out of 
the politicians and leaders in Ukraine are so powerful that they kind of like make it a little bit more irrelevant, the disinformation coming from other sources in ways we haven't really seen before because this crisis, this war is so, it's just so real and clear (laughs) in a way that we've become not used to in the West because we usually have these weird stories yeah. yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it, this is very black and white, and and it does. I mean, this is sort of the argument that Mark Zuckerberg has made for a long time, is essentially that the truth wins, right? That no matter how much garbage and untruth there is online and elsewhere in our lives, that ultimately the the power of truth um, prevails. I don't know that well, that's true. To agree with Mark yeah, Zuckerberg, I th- I think and I, think is, I don't know that's true. Wrong, this is an outlier, is usually, right? Like you, you can't. It's an you outlier. can't extrapolate yeah. from, you know, an unprovoked war of aggression by Russia on Ukraine and say, well, if everyone understands what the truth is in this case, then therefore they will always understand what the truth is in all cases. I mean, the fact that roughly half of the American electorate thinks that Joe Biden is was not actually legitimately elected president of the United States is proof that the truth does not always win. Yeah, and it's not clear if it will long-term here either. Like on January 6th, right, everyone sort of seemed to agree what the story was. And now there's more, there's disagreement over it. And we all thought like, this is very clear. Um, so that's something I'm thinking about it's too. So it might, long-term cutting off the misinformation might really matter. And, and I just want to call out a couple of other things that the tech companies yeah. have done in this in this conflict that are maybe um, maybe more profound, um, at least to Ukrainians. Is you know you had companies including uh, Facebook and Twitter that sort of released information in Ukrainian and Russian to help Ukrainians essentially lock down their accounts and locations mm. so that they couldn't be accessed by Russians and and put them put their security at risk and Google kind of disabled location services again for similar similar reasons and just on Thursday Google said that you know the the Kremlin basically said you have to you Google have to stop running ads that have what the Russian government considered you know, misinformation about the Ukraine war meaning the the truth about this war in the Ukraine and Google rather than complying just said, we're going to turn off all ads in Russia, period. Right. So, you know, we are seeing some of these, as you said, these kind of de facto um, diplomats or de facto geopolitical power broker moves by these tech companies in ways that are helpful. And, And we also, you know, we can't forget that YouTube and Facebook and Twitter were and are some of the you know, important technologies and tools used by Russian activists and dissidents, including Alexei Navalny, the now jailed Russian opposition politician. So, you know, these internet services, mostly American internet services, have been important sources to disseminate truth in Russia long before right. war. Although although now Russia is moving in the direction of China and throttling their services and making it harder for Russians to have access to them. Um, so we, like... We do seem to be moving in that sense to a kind of, in many, many ways, to a kind of Soviet model where you just have this completely parallel, separate system going on and they barely ever even touch each other or speak to each other. And I, I'm i not sure whether that's bad or good. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about is we've all heard a lot in recent years about this thing called fintech and about this thing called crypto and um and when it comes Emily is shaking her head I wish people could see this (laughs) (laughs) Um, and when it comes to money it strikes me that again the power of the technology companies is ultimately marginal they can they can help a little at the margin but you know the crypto companies basically said yeah, we're not going to stop Russians from dealing with us. And the reaction of the central banks was, okay, that's fine, because the central banks already govern all of what's known as the on-ramps and off-ramps. If any Russian wants to convert Bitcoin into any kind of hard currency, that's going to have to happen through a bank which is regulated, and so they can't do that. So like on the, on some level the central banks really don't care if russians have lots of bitcoin it, it's it's like as long as you control the dollar all of this techno wizardry kind of is beside the point it doesn't really help you very much 
Yeah, and, and I think honestly, the the last couple of years, uh, including during this war, I, I've really struggled with these two contradictory ideas that are both true, which is both that technology is this incredibly powerful force that is disrupting everything, and also that it doesn't matter very much in <laughs> some of the important issues of our lives, right? It's not like um, G- Google didn't come up with vaccines. Um, Childcare has not been solved by Facebook. Tim Cook is not driving tanks uh, through Ukraine, <laughs> right? You know, there is a little bit of impotence at the same time that there is this enormous power of technology. And and again, both are true, but it, I have really struggled trying to reconcile those contra- contradictory ideas. One place where the tech companies have been helpful is – Payments, interestingly enough, Wise is a really good example. A bunch of people have just have realized that if you know anyone in Ukraine, or if you know anyone who knows anyone in Ukraine, it's unbelievably easy in a matter of seconds to log onto your in, into like your Wise.com account and transfer money directly into their bank account, and they get the bank and they get whatever money you want to give them more or less immediately. And it's just an incredibly easy way of helping people in Ukraine if you want to do that. And Airbnb has also been used this way. I I noticed a bunch of people have been booking Airbnbs in Ukraine for places they are clearly not going to be staying at, but just as a way of like transferring money to the people who own those places. And the people who own the places are like incredibly grateful and thankful for this. And this is a way for... Ukraine to become enmeshed in the West. Obviously, geopolitically, there's a huge amount of talk about whether it'll join NATO, whether it'll join the EU, but it's very much part of the financial system in the West, and we can move money into Ukraine so much easier than we ever could even just a few years ago. I think what you're saying is tech is an amazing tool, but not the ultimate power in any situation. As we're learning or being reminded now, it's like military power is important. The power of the dollar is very important. And then tech can enable those things. The the power is with SWIFT, right? And with the banks. So like, if you wanted to send money to friends in Russia, and like Russians, we we have to mention here, are very much suffering already and will suffer even more and their economy is imploding. And there are a lot of entirely blameless Russians in Russia who are running out of money and who really need money. And can you send money to them? No, because Russia has been cut off. So that's, that's like a geopolitical decision which the tech companies have nothing to do with. But so long as a, com- a country like Ukraine has not been cut off, it is, it, the world feels incredibly small. Speaking of store of value, I did see a few stories of a couple of days ago that Russians were buying iPhones as a store of value because they're worried the ruble was going to be worthless. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Apple instead has of stopped selling buying them Bitcoin. Now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, I was thinking about the old days when you'd get stories about people, Russians buying Levi's and now they're buying iPhones. I don't know. It makes sense. And you're note. right. I mean, yeah, if, uh, Apple has sort of suspended. Um, product sales in Russia, although it's not clear if that's a principled stand or more of a logistical reality that it's hard to move products in and out of the country right now and also pay people in in Russia for these reasons that Felix already mentioned. And and also, like, if, you know, Russian iPhones are denominated in rubles, and what the hell is Apple going to do with a bunch of rubles it gets from selling iPhones in Russia, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's funny, you know, Apple and other uh, other companies have had these issues before where when you when you operate in countries with wildly gyrating currencies, how the heck do you price your product, right? If the value of the ruble goes up up or down 30% or 50% in a day, um how do you, do you reset prices? What do you do? But I mean, this seems like a marginal issue in war, but But I mean, is there is there a sort of revisionist angle here which says that pre-pandemic, pre-war certainly, and even pre-pandemic, we were living in this kind of incredibly stable, low-volatility world where Western governments didn't really need to do very much and therefore didn't do very much. And the big tech companies 
felt incredibly powerful in relation to the kind of lazy OTOs governments who weren't doing very much. But then the minute that the pandemic comes along and you get these massive stimulus packages and you get, you know, governments, you know, pushing vaccine around the countries and around the world and then the war comes along and you get governments cutting off entire countries like Russia and really showing what they're capable of at that point you start to realize well actually maybe the tech companies aren't quite so powerful after all and this talk that you know that Mark Zuckerberg is just as um, important and powerful as Vladimir Zelensky you're like yeah maybe not. Yeah, it's a great point. And maybe, I mean, maybe the, the, the way to think about it is that the, the pandemic and war proves the essential power of conventional state and, and ultra state institutions, including, you know, the president of the United States and heads of central banks and the World Health Organization and, um, fina- traditional financial institutions that they still matter a lot. Such a good point. It's like, we were all on summer recess and the tech companies were like bossing us around like counselors at camp or something. But then we all went back to school and they were totally irrelevant. I mean, the sort of the counterpoint in my brain is that this has been a world marked by war and conflict before there was Ukraine, right? There was yeah. sort of this endless crisis in Syria and in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in Ethiopia and a coup in Myanmar and, you know, keep going down the list. It's not like we've been... Uh, the world has been at peace for the last um, five or six years. So I I don't know how to reconcile that. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I want to talk about the one big trillion-dollar tech company that we haven't mentioned yet, which is Amazon. Um, or, or rather, you want to talk about the one big trillion dollar tech company that we haven't. I always want to talk about Amazon. Um, so, Shira, what what is the latest with Amazon's? Should we say it's omni-channel curious? Like it, it, we all think. Of <laughs> I it love that. This. Yes, we should say that. <laughs> <laughs> we always think of Amazon as being this e-tailer, it's like it sells things online, but like it keeps on wanting to try and have physical locations and it bought whole foods which had a bunch of physical locations and how is that going so it's not going awesome i think is is a fair thing to say but yes um Omnichannel, I will say that it is the terrible term that the retail industry uses basically to mean that e-commerce and physical stores kind of work hand in hand uh, and and people will shop at both. But you're right that that Whole Foods acquisition that Amazon made was really this declaration by Amazon that stores, physical stores still matter. And they matter a great deal, particularly for things like groceries, which is one of the largest categories of consumer spending in the United States and in the world, and which is still largely offline, and where people who are in this industry know that the way to get the more of consumers' wallets is to get them both online and, and in physical stores. And look, it's really striking to me that this smart and ambitious um, and relentless company like Amazon has kind of not figured out groceries. That They've been operating this grocery delivery service called Amazon Fresh for 15 years. And it was for a while confined only to Seattle, which is a sign that Amazon didn't think it was really working. And then it bought Whole Foods. And then Amazon inexplicably started another chain of physical grocery stores called Fresh. And it also has these go convenience stores without cashiers. 
it feels like Amazon is still kind of fumbling in the dark a little bit um, in groceries. And then it also announced this week that it had dozens and dozens of uh, bookstores and these kind of tchotchke shops called Amazon Four Star. <laughs> and it was basically just giving up on those. It was clear that Amazon didn't have a clear idea of what it was doing with those bookstores and those, uh, you know, Brookstone but Amazon stores and just gave up. Can we talk more about the grocery stores? Um, your colleague had a piece about shopping in the new, I guess it's Washington, D.C. area, Whole Foods. It's like very big and there's cameras all over the place, like this like panopticon kind of space where every avocado you pick up is like tracked and then you can walk out without paying, which sounds cool, but also extremely creepy. And I wonder so much, is this going to catch on? Because on the one hand, it seems amazing. And on the other hand, just awful. Like, why would you want a grocery shop without humans? Who's packing your bags? I, it stresses me out. Um, yes. And and this is basically, yeah, yeah you're right. Uh, my colleague Cecilia Kong wrote the story about um, Whole Foods in the Glover Park neighborhood in Washington, yes. D.C. And it is basically, you know, Amazon has been running these convenience stores with this technology it calls Just Walk Out, which is basically we put cameras and sensors in every square inch of this store to track everything that you kind of pick up and put in your shopping basket and walk out with. And the that store in D.C. is the first time that Amazon has brought that technology to a to Whole Foods, to a like a large, larger format grocery store. And you're right. It is both cool and creepy. And, you know, when Amazon first announced these ghost stores, there was this uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction in the grocery industry and in the tech industry where everybody thought, oh, God, we have to do this too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you saw companies like Microsoft coming up with trying to come up with something similar. And Walmart has experimented with this. And we'll see. I mean, you know, it. somebody once said to me, never underestimate the desire of the American consumer to never speak to other humans when they're yeah. shopping. Yeah. So, um, and so Amazon may be on to something, um, but but we'll see. It, it always strikes me that Amazon's solution to the the sort of pain points of shopping is basically to throw robots at at the problem, and I'm not sure that that is really the solution to, you know, why it's like terrible to shop at department stores or why it's terrible to shop. At grocery stores, sometimes I don't know that like robots which is, and which is, are the answer. Which is a little bit interesting slash ironic, given that Amazon is you know the biggest employer in the world. Um, you know they they are very not good the at biggest, throwing, but they're big. Yes, they they are one of the biggest. Anyway, like they are very good at throwing humans at problems when they need to, and in this particular problem, they don't like just anecdotally since the Whole Foods acquisition had count at Whole Foods has not seemed to have gone up. It's like that is an area where they're not throwing humans at the problem. Um, And they do seem to be, like I wrote a piece of Slate a few years ago about this phenomenon whereby every time that Amazon announces that it's getting into a new market, everyone else, the stock prices of everyone else in the market go down because everyone's like, oh my God, Amazon is this fearsome fearsome competitor. And then a few months later, they just go back up again because it turns out that Amazon is not actually a fearsome competitor in almost anything except for books and a few other like niche areas. And it turns out also, apropos this week's news, that even in books, it's not a fearsome competitor if you're talking about the physical stores they set up all of these physical bookstores which seemed like a good idea at the time and again there was all of this fear from local independent bookstores that oh no we are never going to be able to compete with the amazon bookstore the amazon bookstore is going to be so much cheaper didn't happen they're closing them all down yeah so i just want to make a point about humans that the thing that we really don't know about these this just walk out technology is is it really fewer humans to operate a a store without without cashiers, because no. you do still need people to sort of stock the shelves and make sure that the sensors and cameras are working correctly, right? It may be actually, I don't know, it may be more labor intensive and less profitable for Amazon to run these kind of tech heavy stores than it is to run a kind of human forward store. So we'll see about that. But I think your broader point about, you know, this kind of fear of Amazon that anytime it enters a new category, 
the entire industry kind of reverberates. And you're right that Whole Foods was a great example of that, that like the share prices of REITs, real estate investment trusts that have grocery store tenants tanked. Campbell's soup <laughs> stock price tanked, right? It was like, Amazon is going to change everything in groceries. And it hasn't, at least not yet. And, you know, my colleague had this great line in her article about um, Amazon closing these these bookstores and, and, and Amazon four-star stores, that the year after um, Amazon bought Whole Foods, its revenue from physical stores was $17 billion and change, and that last year it was about the same. It had actually declined wow. slightly. And even though this company has been opening many more physical stores, it, you know, there's, there's a caveat to that, which is that Amazon doesn't count um, if you buy something, order something online, and then pick it up at the store, uh, including for groceries. Amazon counts that as an online sale rather than a physical store sale. But I think the reality is that if Amazon's physical stores were pulling in gigantic revenue, it would say so, and it hasn't. Can I just say one more thing about the humans versus robots? Because I, oh, I yes. think about humans it all the time. Because um, my local CVS changed to all self-checkout in the pandemic. And every time I go in there, it is the worst. It's like this <laughs> just sloppy looking row of self-checkout stands. And the, the people who go to this CVS in particular are a little older and they're always struggling at the self-checkout. So then there's always like three or four CVS workers, you know, pressing buttons for them and help, ma'am, no, ma'am, you need to enter your pin code now, ma'am. And it's just like the worst. Um, and I recently also, I was speaking to Chris Mims about the supply chain for some reason. Um, and he was saying also, you know, when, when more robots enter the manufacturing warehouse, it doesn't mean more people exit. It just means they have different kinds of jobs. So now instead of doing checkout, these poor CVS men and women are like, no, ma'am, you have to do it like this. And like their job just changed. I don't know if it changed for the better, honestly, just based on this one single data point. Um, but there, that's all. I just wanted to say all that. Thank you. I want to sort of think a little bit more about this idea of omni-channel because we've seen a lot of direct-to-consumer brands open up stores because it turns out that paying rent on a physical store is in many ways cheaper than buying space on Instagram, you know? So you can get the same kind of brand advertising, basically, from a storefront in downtown Manhattan that you can from uh, a targeted Instagram campaign, and it will cost you less. Um, so that's that's the kind of the most famous part of omnichannel. But the biggest omnichannel success story, if it is a success story, and sure, I really want to ask you this, is Walmart. You know, they, they bought Jet.com for $3 billion. They have a pretty big and aggressive online operation. Um, and obviously, well, I say it's obvious, but it maybe isn't obvious, but it's true that their whole buy online, pick up in store situation is just orders of magnitude bigger and more, you know, used in practice than anything that Amazon mm. has. I, I think what Walmart has done is really fascinating. And I actually wrote a piece. I, it's hard to prove this math, but I wrote a piece uh, a year or so ago that actually wondered if maybe Walmart's grocery store sales grew faster than Amazon's, which would be remarkable because Walmart is the largest grocer in the United States wow. and um, Amazon is a niche player. But you're right that, I mean, particularly after Amazon bought Whole Foods, part of the knee-jerk reaction in the grocery industry was companies, including Walmart, um, accelerated some of their digital um, ideas that had been kind of sitting on a shelf. And so the what they call in the industry click and collect, right? That you buy it, you order online, and that you pick up in the store. At Walmart, particularly during the pandemic, and, and Target and other stores did this too, they really just put their foot on the gas. And people really like that. It turns out it is very convenient to buy your groceries uh, at home and then on your way when you're running other errands to just kind of go to the Walmart parking lot and have a store worker plop these grocer groceries in your trunk and then you go on your way. And that has proven extremely powerful for Walmart as a way to kind of grab market share, particularly from smaller grocers. And I, I'm really interested to see how how 
all of these companies that were mainly kind of physical grocers, how they um, find more ways to kind of merge online and offline in that kind of omnichannel way, but in a way that's not just like a, a, a marketing PowerPoint slide. And is this just a little data point to back up this idea that Amazon is not this incredibly fearsome competitor after all? And even though it's got a, certainly has a very high share price, you know, probably in large part because of its AWS operations as much as any retailing that it does. Um, it's really not this kind of awesome, we have everything solved and we are three years ahead of everybody else retailer. There are a lot of other retailers who are kind of working this out better than Amazon is. Yeah, I mean, the best retail ideas during the pandemic didn't come from Amazon. They came from companies like Walmart and Instacart and Shopify and, um, you know, not not Amazon. Look, I, I don't want to... It's sort of the optimistic way of looking at it is look at, at how – look at Amazon's retail sales and their growth and their share price. It's at this level and it still kind of sucks at physical retail. So if it figures that out, even just a little bit, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe it really goes to the moon. That's the optimistic way of thinking about it. Why does it even need physical retail, though? Like, who cares? It makes plenty of money. Like, who? why did it open bookstores? Honestly, yeah, the bookstores, no yeah, the the bookstores old, really made no sense. This is the old argument I used to have with Anna Shemansky all the time. Like, <laughs> you're doing great. Why do you need to grow? And she'd be like, if you're a public company, if you don't grow, you die. You I'm like, they're grow. not going to die. Right. <laughs> I, I think there is, there has been this, I think, awakening um, among many online online sellers that the way to capture more consumers wallet is you need to do both because uh, people kind of seamlessly move between right. shopping in person and shopping online and to get more of consumers wallet, which is what Amazon needs to do, right? If you're already a trillion dollar, $2 trillion company, the only way to grow is to just keep going into these gigantic, gigantic markets, and groceries yeah. is a gigantic market. Well, they shouldn't have bought a niche supermarket. They should have gone bigger. They should have gone I, for I honestly have wondered, does Amazon remember that it bought Whole Foods, and does it hate <laughs> Whole Foods? Because you really see signs of, like, Amazon kind of strangling Whole Foods during yeah. the pandemic and, like, not having people in the stores. And I, I just don't know what Amazon is, is doing with Whole Foods, period. The thing which was just in the, back, in the back of my head, and I can't remember which large pet retailer it was. I think it might have been PetSmart. Um, recently went in the opposite direction and announced it was separating its physical stores oh, yeah, from its online operation. And, and it, they're like running away from the omnichannel dream. Um, and so I was just wondering whether like, is, is omnichannel not actually necessarily and obviously the future for all retailers? That's really interesting. I, I did not know that about whichever pet re retailer that was. I I have seen very few companies that I can think of, retailers that I can think of, that say, no, we're only going to do we're only going to do websites or we're only going to do physical stores. It, the trend really seems to be that you have to do both because that's how people shop. You certainly can't be a physical store without a website in 2022. That would be absolutely bonkers. Yeah, I mean, even my like little <laughs> cheese shop in my neighborhood, even yeah. they opened a like Shopify website to sell stuff online during the pandemic. So I, yeah. to me, that was like, okay, everybody, even little local businesses realize that they have to do this. But I don't think Amazon needs a physical presence. I think they were right to kill those bookstores. Like sometimes it's okay to walk away from from your mistakes. Yeah, I hate to quote Jeff Bezos isms, but you know, he has this line about one-way doors versus two-way doors, right? You can make mistakes um, in areas where there is turning back, where you can sort of say, well, this, this was stupid. Uh, we'll just shut it down and that's it. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Shira, can we please talk about the internet and how it's (laughs) stupid? I mean, sorry. (laughs) We... I'm going to have a little bit of a rant here and then you're going to come in and be sensible. But... Ooh, let's go. um, About a decade ago or so, I would say, there was this really significant change in our lives where we moved from this world where you would go online to do things online. And there were like two different states of being. There was like, I'm online and I'm not online. I'm online and I'm offline. To a world where we were always connected to the internet at all times. And it didn't really, the the idea of going online didn't mean anything anymore. And as with all of these transitions, it was a bit clunky. And the way that we wound up doing that transition was by paying an enormous amount of money to broadband and cellular data providers um, to give us like these always on internet connections that, you know, we kind of used all the time or a lot of the time. Um, And we would look around the world at places like Korea and say, well, obviously, you know, bandwidth, internet access is this completely basic necessity and commodity And eventually it's just going to become like water. It's not going to be free, but it's going to be very, very cheap. And for various reasons, that totally hasn't happened. And to this day, um, there are large chunks of the United States that find it actually very difficult to get broadband. And virtually all of the United States, where if you do want broadband, it costs you a ridiculous amount of money by the standards of anywhere else in the world. So I'm in Europe right now. I needed to switch out data on my phone. I took out my American SIM. I put in an English SIM and suddenly I'm paying literally a tenth of what I was paying. Oh my God. You know, the American company. A and tenth? like, uh, Yeah, a tenth. And then if you look at how much does broadband cost in the UK or in Korea or something like that, you know, it'll They'll be like, it's five pounds a month, it's seven dollars a month, it's ten dollars a month. And then you go to the United States and they're like, Well, that'll be seventy-five dollars a month, please, just for broadband. And you're like, why? Yeah. What? Go off, Felix. That's crazy. Why am I paying Exactly? Why? Why am I paying this much? And the reason you're paying so much is because it's basically a monopoly. That there's this system in the United States where the telecommunications providers have effectively divvied up the country between them and there's one monopoly in any given place and if you're buying internet in any given place you're basically you have have a choice of one provider and it's terrible and there is an incredibly simple solution to this problem so i need to tell you a little baby story about what happened to this to me this week which is that i lost my internet um i'm renting one of a pair of houses on the west coast of Ireland, um, which were rented out by a lovely company. And um, the other house is undergoing renovations right now. And the other house is where the the fiber modem was, basically. It's where, it's where the fiber comes into the house. And the people who are the plumbers, bless them, who are doing renovations on the other house, decided to, like, rip out all of the Cat5 cable from the other house Oops. because you know they're plumbers and they had no idea like flashing lights we don't need those rip and so i lost my internet and so the company that my landlords buy the internet from is this company called lighthouse and they're like we we can't help you because what we need to do is we need to get the actual fiber provider out to fix the physical internet connection there's a fiber provider who lays the fiber and who you know pushes the internet into all of the homes around here and that is a monopoly and it makes sense you don't want 18 different physical data connections for every single house you want one so you get one fiber provider who no one has ever heard of it's like this this like 
business to business, you know, utility, basically, that lays fiber all over Ireland. And then anyone can basically set themselves up as an internet service provider and sell internet over those pipes. So like a guy just came by my door yesterday and said, Hi, I'm from Vodafone, you have fiber here, if you want fiber, we'll sell it to you for 20 euros a month or something. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't we use someone else? We use Lighthouse. It, it, any different company can compete with each other to sell internet service and to do all of the billing and the customer service and all of that over that line. It's called local loop unbundling. It has been completely standard in virtually every country in the world for as long as I can remember, except for in America, where apparently it doesn't exist. Rant over. Why? Shira, why? Oof, man. Uh, okay. Yes, you're right. So the, the, what we, what we did in the United States was, I think your point, Felix, is that there are certain services that are natural monopolies, right? Uh, you know, water and sewage. We don't want to have 40 different companies running, uh, the sewage pipes that run through New York City. That would be stupid and counterproductive. So there are these kinds of services that are natural monopolies, and we kind of regulate them as natural monopolies, right? So that there isn't uh, consumers aren't taken advantage of, and hmm. we have chosen. So, and the United States made a choice maybe about fifteen years ago, where we kind of picked two paths simultaneously, where we decided, okay, we're going to have there is some natural monopoly properties of uh, a broadband, home broadband. We're going to treat it like a natural monopoly and regulate it as such. And then we're also going to have some of these kind of free market ideas, free market competition ideas. And what we wound up with was basically the worst of both worlds, where we have heavy-handed regulation that isn't particularly good at regulating. And we also have this illusion of free market competition without really the reality of competition in home broadband. So what you have in the United States is the situation that Felix pointed out, where Americans pay more money for worse internet service than our peers in almost every other affluent country, as do Canadians. I always want to throw Canadians in there too. <laughs> there are tens of millions of Americans, maybe we really don't know the number, which is another kind of maddening example of the failures of, of our broadband system. Tens of millions of Americans maybe don't have access to internet service or can't afford it or both. This is a completely opaque product. There's no price transparency that you can't really know uh, what Americans pay for internet service or the quality of service that they're getting. So there's no way to kind of regulate that as a consumer uh, product. It is just internet service is a failed consumer product in the United States. This is a side, a side note, but makes me think about inflation a little bit because the Biden administration for months now or longer, has been saying we want to um, do antitrust to fight inflation. And I'll think of most regular people have been like, huh, what? Just make milk cost less. But this is like a perfect example. Like if you could fight this monopoly over internet, like my cost of living would drop precipitously. Like yeah. if, 10%. If, if, they, if I mean, Biden just <laughs> passed a law forcing local loop unbundling, basically saying, if Verizon has laid fiber to your apartment, all power to them. Thank you, Verizon, for doing that. But anyone else is allowed to sell internet over that fiber. Verizon does not have a monopoly on selling internet over that fiber. That one law would be transformative in terms of making internet cheaper. And you can see how this works with... Um, Companies like is it is it Mint that is the cell phone company that like uses other people's cell networks and does it at a much cheaper rate? Yeah, there are a few of these. Yeah, but they're they're not very popular in the United States. But you're right, there are these um, cell phone providers that piggyback on the mobile phone networks of the the big carriers. But would Verizon stop laying the fiber if they couldn't have the monopoly? I mean, that's no. certainly the arguments of the internet service providers. But Felix's point is, this is how other many other countries do it. And, you know, I'll point to the work of Susan Crawford at Harvard, uh, Harvard Law School, who has basically been the leading proponent of exactly what Felix is talking about is there should be this sort of shared fiber inf infrastructure in the United States that is maintained in the public interest. And that companies, any any company that 
for relatively low fee can sort of tap into the shared fiber infrastructure, run their lines to individual homes, and that we would have a network that was a shared asset in the United States run for the public benefit of citizens, and companies would still be allowed to sort of for-profit companies would still be allowed to make money on this, but we would not have this the same sort of issue. And and can I mention you know, this there are plenty is how, of arguments against it. This is how the it, but... internet works, right? Like to, to answer to answer <laughs> your question directly, Emily, it doesn't matter if Verizon stops laying fiber, because anyone would be allowed to lay fiber. Anyone could lay, like, if you own, if you were a developer and you built your own apartment building, you could just build your own fiber into the apartment building, hook it into the internet, and then anyone could compete to provide internet over that fiber. The entire internet works this way. Look at the big, like, trans um, oceanic undersea cables that the entire internet runs on, or the massive internet pipes that crisscross the United States. They're mostly owned by big, faceless companies you've never heard of. And everyone runs their internet traffic over those pipes. And the way that the economics of that works out and the way that the owners of those pipes wind up profiting from the internet traffic that runs over them has been a completely non-controversial and happy thing for what you know decades and we can do this because we do it every day it's only that last few feet basically from you know the street into your house that there's this monopoly everything else is already mm. shared yeah, it's, I totally hear you I mean you know it's this issue of and I can totally see this right that there are incumbent cable and telecom companies that like the status quo. And, you know, it is sort of scary to change the way that internet service has worked for 20 years, including for politicians. You know, the, the sort of there's this maddening issue where it's not even clear right now whether the Federal Communications Commission has the legal authority to regulate broadband at all in, in the kinds of ways that, Felix, you're talking about. Um <sighs> And, and that is one of these, like, political football questions that is just a, a teeny example of how this system is, like, at the core, broken. Well, I take back everything I said in previous segment about the awesome power of the state to do war and to do money because they can't even get this Internet thing figured out. It's ridiculous. I, I mean, I will say on a note of hope that I think the last two years have really changed things, right, that that – the reality of living more of our lives through screens created this sense of urgency among politicians um, and the public, I think, too. And, and people have been advocating for a change in Internet regime in the United States for a long time. You know, th there has been more movement in the last two years than there probably had in the prior 10 or 15. Um, and, you know, there was a huge amount of, of broadband funding passed by by Congress. It's not perfect. Um some of that will be used in stupid ways, I have no doubt. But there are really interesting things happening. But the kinds of things that Felix is talking about with this sort of internet, home internet as this shared asset um, that is not completely monopolized by a handful of powerful companies, that is almost like the third rail of, of uh, internet life. And it, I, I'm not sure that will ever happen. Imagine being the politician that lowered everyone's broadband bill from a, to $10 from $100. Like, let's, let's elect that woman president. Like, that's amazing. Like, let's get this done. Let's, I don't know if yeah, I mean, if you, if you could just, this, if you could just but. show screenshots of like people at home in France or South Korea, this is how much I pay for internet yeah. service and these are my speeds. Like, I would vote for that person. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. Lena Khan for president. <laughs> she would do it, right? Yes. She might do it, yes. Um, yeah, but but again, the, the FTC, she doesn't have authority over broadband, but yes, I guess she would try to do it. Let's have a numbers round. Emily, did you bring a number this week? Yeah. You know what? I'm just going to do 678,000, okay? It's predictable and boring, but it's amazing. 678,000 is the number of jobs added in February, um, the jobs report just came out on Friday, and this is a really big, here's my analysis. This is a, a really big number. 
Um, that's a lot of jobs. <laughs> um, Wait, is that, is that what you put in your Axios.com thought bubble on Friday morning? This is a really big I number. It's a really, really big number, you guys. Um, but it's and, interesting because it, it was wrote... <laughs> associated with a small number, which is 3.8%, which is the unemployment rate, yes. which is like super yes. low. The interesting thing, or maybe this is the interesting thing, and I wrote about it earlier this week, is we're having these like big jobs reports and these lots of jobs added to the economy, but like regular people don't realize this or think it's real. Or I mean, it, there's a really big disconnect in the way people perceive the economy and the reality of the economy. And I'm not sure so, how to really resolve that. So our first segment was all about, you know, there's the private sector and then there's the government and the government is just where it's at, really. And my number is kind of related to this because um, what you're talking about, Emily, is the official Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly job report, which everyone takes as the gold standard of how many jobs are created every month. It does have errors. It is revised every month. But it's, you know, it's the one economic statistic that everyone looks at. For people who want to trade it on the markets and people who want to be just like a couple of days faster, there's an alternative number, which is put out by ADP, which is a massive payrolls company. And they are literally plugged into like this absolutely enormous number of businesses who all use ADP to run their payroll. And if you're running payroll over this thing, like they know to exactly without any error like how many people are being paid by adp each month and so you would think that adp where it was the bls just goes out with the with the survey basically and asks people did you work this week you would think that adp would in many ways be more accurate than the bls bls running out with its survey my number this week is eight hundred and ten thousand. so adp came out with its february report this week but at the same time as coming out with its February report, it also revised its January numbers. ADP has revisions just like BLS has revisions. Um, the original January report from ADP showed 301,000 jobs lost in January. Oh, my God. The revised ADP number, and remember, this is a company which is really, you know, it has all of the payrolls, it runs the payrolls itself. The revised number went from a loss of 301,000 to a gain of 509,000. There's a delta there of 810,000. They revised the January figures by 810,000. It's like, Yikes. how, you know, like, again, we can complain about the government all we like, but this super scientific private sector jobs number, it can swing from like, one month of the next, for the same month, the original January figure to the revised January figure can be over 800,000 jobs. It's crazy. Did they blame the pandemic for this? Or how did they explain <laughs> being so, so wrong? I should ask them. I, I have not asked them. But yeah, if I was committing journalism right now, I'd definitely ask them. Like, how, do you get, how do you get it that wrong? <laughs> Shira, what's your number? My number is 18%. And this is, again, about the internet dysfunction that we were just talking about, that 18% is the estimated percentage of households in New York City that, as of January 2020, had neither broadband service nor mobile phone service. So, the, oh, wow. again, the, the, in the economic engine of the United States, there are maybe a million and a half, million and a half people who, at that point, didn't have any connections to these lives that we all, all had to live through screens. Wow. I remember Hurricane Sandy. I was living in the East Village and there was all of this flooding and the um, telephone wires that went into my building in New York got destroyed basically by the flood. And by law, Verizon, who was in charge of those wires, had to replace them. And what Verizon did is it went up to New York City and said, listen, this is silly. These are old-fashioned copper wires. They're ancient technology. Um, instead of forcing us to just go out and spend an absolute fortune on replacing those out-of-date wires, can you just give us like six months and we'll put you know super swanky fiber cable in instead? And New York said, yeah, fine, that makes sense. So we had to live for like six months 
without fiber kit, without any kind of telephone wire or connectivity. But the promise was that we'd get like this amazing broadband fiber. How long is it since Sandy? Like 12 Ten years? years? 10 years? Yeah, yeah, like over a decade. Over a decade later, that fiber still has not arrived. Oh my God, wow. Oh my God. Yeah. But you move, so you're fine. <laughs> right, you're in Ireland where the internet is great, <laughs> unless there are plumbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just never trust the plumbers. But yeah, the ease with which people can fall through the cracks and wind up with no service at all is um, terrible. And the these very, very for-profit private sector companies who, you know, who don't really feel like they have a societal obligation to provide connectivity to everyone, they just don't care. And they, even when it's by law that they have to, they don't. But I think that's it for Slate Money. Shira Overday, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to be here. I always start my weekend uh, listening to Felix and Emily, so glad to be part of it this week. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Um, wow. Now now I'm going to be like every subsequent episode, I'm just going to be cowering. I'm like, oh, shit, Shira's listening. We have to be smart. Um, <laughs> no, I like it. I wouldn't listen every weekend if I didn't like it. <laughs> thanks all of you guys for, for writing in slate money at slate.com um, and we will be back next week with even more slate money this is the story of the one as head of maintenance at a concert hall he knows the show must always go on that's why he works behind the scenes Ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.